turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Billy Graham wrote in The Key to Personal Peace, One of the powerful, enduring images that my wife Ruth and I have endured of our early years together is that of the ticker tape parades in New York City celebrating the end of World War II. The war was finally over, and those who were spared from death by the enemy were jubilant beyond words. Millions of multicolored streamers and mountains of confetti rained down on the returning heroes. Friends, family, and fellow citizens danced in the streets to express their own happiness and excitement. Emotions ran high, unfettered joy, exuberant hope for the future. But the emotion that ran the deepest, causing tears to rush down the faces of moms and dads, grandparents, and even stalwart soldiers, from privates to generals, was relief. The war was over. There was peace at last. This morning we are wrapping up our study on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. This has been a wonderful chapter as we've looked at it. It is a wonderful chapter with a clear statement about what the saving gospel is all about. We see that in the first few verses. And then as we've progressed through, we've seen this over and over This great anthem, this great rise about the resurrection. Over and over, Paul sounds out the great refrain, Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And believers are reminded that because Jesus lives, so also do we live. And because Jesus lives, we have victory. Because Jesus lives, we can celebrate like those who celebrated at the end of World War II. Because we have peace at last. Well, this morning we will see how the resurrection of Christ brings about four greats. We'll see the great transformation. We'll see the great triumph. We'll see a great thanksgiving. And then because of all that, we'll see a great therefore. But before we get into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus, the great victory that we have in him, because we have peace with God, peace with you. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd open the hearts and minds of every person here, that your spirit would minister to our hearts, to our minds, to our bodies and our souls. Lord, that when we leave from here, we have a great understanding of the great victory that we have in the resurrection through your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us as we study this morning. In Jesus' holy and precious name, by the power of your spirit, amen. Look with me beginning in verse number 50. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit corruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. Friends, this morning, the first thing I want you to see is the great transformation. The great transformation. In in this final section of this chapter, Paul sums up the fundamental principle that those who remain in Adam, if you remember looking back at the, the verses before last week, those who remain in the human nature, the nature of Adam, the sinful nature, the fallen nature, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what is this kingdom of God? Well, we know it is only the disciple of Christ who will inherit the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has been a matter of debate throughout the centuries. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the kingdom that awaits in the future. It's when those who belong to Christ are raised, will be raised, and the Son takes those who have been raised, takes all things, the judgment comes, the the goats are separated from the sheep, and the sheep are taken in, and Christ gives all things back to the Father. We saw this a few weeks ago, earlier in this chapter. The Jews were awaiting the reestablishment of their own physical earthly kingdom. They thought the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to defeat the Romans, to defeat all their enemies, and set up a physical realm for them, to reestablish the nation of Israel, just as King David had established it, this great, this great time of peace for the nation. Well, in 1948, after having two world wars, the United Nations decided that they were going to establish a physical kingdom of Israel, a, a nation, a state of Israel. But as we see today, if you look at the news, is there peace in the world? Is there peace in Israel? The answer is no. So was that the way of the kingdom of God? No, it was not. See, they had a very narrow view of what they thought the kingdom of God was going to be. But the New Testament, Jesus tells us that God's plan is greater, far greater than a physical kingdom. For a human nation. God's plan is not about giving a a nation a piece of land. But about reestablishing his own kingdom. His own nation on the earth. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, rule over it. Rule the fish of the sea. Rule the birds of the sky. And rule every creature that crawls on the earth. See, God's plan, when he created the earth, was he put a little piece of himself in us. We look like God. We are the image of God. 
as humans. What does that mean? It means that God has entrusted the earth to us to rule over it as under-shepherds, as managers under Him. And so God's goal is not to give the Jews a piece of land, but to return the earth to the way that it was originally created. That we would fall not not in uh, a corrupted way, but that we would rule the earth as faithful stewards, as managers of God's kingdom, and we would reflect His glory by ruling with peace and benevolence. So the consummation of this plan, of God's great plan, is at the end of the age, with the resurrection of the dead, with the complete renewal of creation. He says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll be given new bodies that are connected to our current bodies, as we saw last week, so that everything that is in the new creation will be perfect. And since we are not perfect, we need a great transformation. Paul uses this parallelism, to say the same thing. He says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, the perishable will not inherit the imperishable. This goes back to what we talked about last week, this idea of the seed, right? Uh, Those who are solely in Adam, Adam alone, are under the condemnation of Adam. The body of sin cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God, cannot receive the eternal life of God. So God has designed something that is much better and much greater for those who place their faith and trust in Christ. Unless a person places their faith and trust in Christ, then they will not receive a resurrected body, a perfected body, one without corruption. But for the one who does accept Christ, They receive a resurrected body that is perfected. It's transformed. So without Christ, we cannot receive the full blessings of the gospel. So rather than being a member of the kingdom of God, if you're outside of Christ, instead you receive God's judgment. In fact, if you would turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Familiar passage. John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, we often want to stop there. right? But what's it say in the next verse? For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Why? Verse 18, Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. See, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed. There is no one righteous, not one. And so God sent his Son, who was righteous, to live a righteous life and to die on the cross so that we could be saved from the condemnation that we all understood, stood under. So every person has to make a choice. Either you choose Christ and you receive this great transformation, or you reject Christ and instead receive damnation. But what happens? So what, what's going on here? Paul's been talking about the dead being uh, placed in the grave, and then they're 
resurrected and they get a resurrected body. But for the believers that are they're listening to it and they're anticipating that Christ is going to come back soon, and we ought to be anticipating that Christ is going to come back soon, what, mean, what does it mean for us if Christ comes back and we have not yet died? This is the question Paul's answering here. What happens... What happens if we are not dead? Well, change is necessary for both the living and the dead. Even if we're still alive, our bodies are still sinful. We still have the effects of sin. And so even those believers that are living at the time of Christ's return have to undergo the great transformation to be fit for God's kingdom. And so once again, a great transformation is necessary. But the good news is there's nothing that you have to do. Indeed, there's nothing that you can do to transform yourself. It is solely in Christ. It is solely in the power of God. And this transformation simply comes upon the one who has believed in Christ. And it says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the trumpet sound, now this trumpet sounding is this metaphor for a suddenness. I think if you're out in a battle and and nothing's started yet, but the battle, everybody's masters of battle, and then the the trumpet blows and everybody rushes into battle. This is the idea, right? The, The trumpet is a suddenness that breaks the silence. It's a divine decree. The trumpet would often be used to announce Something that's coming. But I want you to think about this. Can God's action and God's word be separated? Can God's word and his action be separated? I say no. For God to speak is action. It, when God says something, it takes place. So when God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. It was an action. When God said, let you be redeemed by the power of my son, the blood of my son, what happened? When you believe in Christ, believe that he was resurrected from the dead, and you confess that Jesus is Lord, at that moment, you were saved. Because God has said, if you do this, then this will happen. It's his action. He declares us righteous. By his son. And so when this trump sounds and this divine decree goes out, God orders it. It is completed. Right? This trumpet doesn't announce that this is about to happen. The trump blows and it happens by the power of God. And this trumpet also announces the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this Old Testament theme that we see in the prophets. It's the day of judgment. It means the day of judgment is here. Those who have died in Christ will be raised up incorruptible. They will be transformed. And those who believe in Christ who are alive will be transformed in the blink of an eye. A few years ago, my unit was sent out to train in Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, We were out in the fields for several days, out in the moon dust is what we called it. Uh, moon dust is this fine, powdery sand that 
it just gets everywhere because it's just so thin and light. It just kind of floats in the air even. And we were there in, in late June. We had our full gear, our helmets, our, our, uh, our pads uh, with our, our metal, or not metal plates, but our ceramic plates in them. So it's hot. You're wearing extra gear. It's heavy. You're sweating in June. We're, we're sleeping in tents. So it was hot. It was sticky. The moon dust was getting everywhere. And it's because you're hot and sticky, it sticks to you. But I was there with a maintenance platoon, so I was lucky. Because uh, the maintenance platoon guys, that's who you want to be with when you go out in the field. Because they're crafty. Uh, so they decided, we're going to take a barrel, and we're going to fill it with water. We're going to take a sump pump, and we're going to stick that sump pump in there with a water hose attached to it. And on that water hose, we're going to attach a shower head. And they brought a ring and stuck it over and put a curtain up. Put it a pallet wind pallet on the ground so that we could have a shower. And so we put a, a trash bag over the, the barrel during the day uh, to keep the water clean and sump pumps can get a lot of dust in those things. And it just sit there and it warm the water all day because it's June, it's hot, water's warm. At the end of a long day, everybody else, <laughs> all the other units were uh, taking about every third day, they would get to load up in the back of the truck and go in shower and they did this on a rotation so they'd go in and they'd shower and then they'd have to ride in the back of a truck all the way back and of course as soon as you get in the back of the truck and start driving back all that moon dust starts getting all over you and it's like what was the point of going and taking a shower because now I'm all just nasty again but we every night got to shower with a hot shower rinse all that stuff off and put on a new clean uniform well I think verse 53 sums up this great transformation like this. We had all this nasty stuff in us. But we just got to wash it away. And Christ washes away all that nasty sin from us. He washes away all the bad stuff. We're still human. Our body's still there, but all, all the bad stuff's gone. And Paul uses this language of putting on, must be clothed with incorruptibility. We're taking the dirty stuff off, and instead we're putting on the clean stuff. We're putting on the Christ stuff. He clothes us in imperishability and immortality, and we're transformed by the power of God through Christ Jesus. But that's only for the believer. If you're still in Adam, you don't get that. Instead, you get the judgment. But if you're in Christ, you get his clothing. So when this great transformation takes place, the long-awaited promise of death's defeat comes to pass, and we see the great triumph. Look with me at verse 54. Verse 54. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the death that is written will take place, or the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And he says, now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
And we see the great triumph, this great victory of God that accompanies the great transformation. Paul said earlier that death must be destroyed so that God may be all in all. He quotes from Isaiah and Hosea here about the believer's victory over death that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. In, in the end, death will have no sway over the one who has been transformed. Yet, Paul speaks to death here, not as what's going to happen, but in the present tense. He says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because indeed, there is no sting in death for the Christian. Why? Because Christ took the sting upon himself when he died on the cross. He died on the cross in a, a sacrificial death. His death was sacrificial. He died willingly. No one forced him. He chose to die as the sacrificial lamb of God. No one could force him, even if they wanted to. He willingly chose to go, to die on the cross. Why did he do it? Well, Christ's death was substitutionary. He died a perfect being in the place of imperfect creatures. You and me. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We all stand enemies before God because we have rebelled against Him, yet Christ died for us. Christ's death was not only sacrificial and substitutionary, but Christ's death was also soothing. What do I mean by that? Well, God is worthy of all worship, is He not? But what have we all failed to we have all failed to give him the honor and the glory and the worship that is due him. Every man has rejected God. But because of God's holy nature, he demands justice for this great wrong that we've done against him. And so there's this penalty of death. But Christ himself, God in the flesh, took that penalty upon himself. And he made atonement. For each person who believes in him, what does that mean? It means for those who trust in him, God is no longer angry with us. God's wrath is no longer against us. Christ has soothed that wrath. Also, Christ's death was sufficient. It was sufficient. As the only perfect man, Christ was the only acceptable substitute to die. Every other man would die not for the sins of the world, but for his or her own sin. But Christ had no sin. He was the sufficient substitutionary sacrifice to soothe God's wrath against mankind. Because of Christ, he took the sting of death himself. We as believers do not have to experience the sting of death and so because we don't have to experience the sting of death, we don't have to experience the victory of the grave. There is no victory for the grave because Christ is victorious over it. Three days after Christ hung on the cross and died, he was buried immediately after, but three days later, after he laid in that ground in that tomb, he walked forth in resurrection power. Now for the Greeks... 
death was the end. For the Greeks, there was no hope beyond the grave. Death was the great enemy that no one could escape. And there are many who live like that today. They look like what we read earlier in this chapter. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is life. And so the believer has no fear for death. The believer's resurrection is an outworking of Christ's own resurrection. Death is already in the process of being defeated. Yet, despite this eventual victory over death, the reality is we don't escape death. We don't need to fear death, but we shouldn't deny it either. Death is a present reality. It's something that we have to deal with. It's a painful reality. Everyone here has lost a loved one. Everyone here has experienced death to some extent, and we know that that feeling of loss hurts, and death is painful for us, even when we know that person is a believer. Even when we know that there's hope that we'll see them again, it hurts, and we mourn, and you should hurt. And you should mourn. Why? Because death is not natural. Death is not natural. It's the result of sin, disease, decay, violence, whatever may cause death. It's all a secondary cause. The primary cause, the ultimate cause, is man's sin. Without sin as the source, none of these other things will exist. God created the world without sin, without death. But mankind brought it into in rebelling against God. And so all of creation is warped by this sin. But what does Paul mean here in verse 56? Now the sting of death is sin. Okay, we understand that part. But what does this part mean? The power of sin is the law. What does that mean? Isn't the law good? Indeed, the law is good, just as the lawgiver is good. And the law explains what a good God expects of his people. We would all be good if we kept God's law. But the problem is that we don't. And the way the law acts is to show us how fallen we are. The law is a mirror in which we look. Remember in Genesis we saw that we are created in the image of God. When we look in this mirror we see how distorted our image of God has become. We understand that we need a great transformation to put us back to seeing the the perfect image of God within us. Now, Paul doesn't go into much detail about the relationship of law and sin here, but if you want to look in the book of Romans, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, he paints this great picture of the way the law and sin work together. But the fact is, the resurrection is essential to the gospel. It saves believers from sin. If there's no resurrection, then sin is not defeated. But because there is a resurrection, we have a great triumph that's found in Christ Jesus alone. And that great triumph should lead us to great thanksgiving. Look with me at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives this brief doxology of thanks to God. And this strengthens the gospel illusion we've seen so far. The victory of the great triumph is found in the great transformation, the resurrection of the believer. Because as great as 
forgiveness is, our victory is not found in being forgiven. As great as the cross is, our victory is not found in the cross. Our victory is found in an empty tomb. There have been many people who've died on a cross and were laid in the ground and they stayed there. There's only been one who died on the cross, was laid in a tomb, and walked out. And that's Jesus Christ. And because Jesus rose, that means we will also rise. So the gospel is a message of victory. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that you have to do to earn your salvation. Christ accomplished it for you, and the victory comes only through him. And if that doesn't lead you to thank God for his love and sacrifice, then you need to examine yourself. In the year 1860, the ship Lady Elgin was rammed by the ship Augusta and sank in Lake Michigan. There was a student there named Edward Spencer. He saw the thing happen. He saw it, and he began to go out into the frigid waters. He began to rescue passengers, dragging them in. And in the process of this, because he was going in and out of the frigid water over and over and over, his health was damaged. He later died, and some years later at his funeral, it was noted that not a single one of the people that he rescued ever told him thank you. Not a single one. Can I admit to you today that sometimes I'm like those passengers? Christ willingly gave his life for mine. He mercifully forgives my sin. He graciously gives me life. He graciously gives me purpose. And he promises in his word that I will be resurrected. Yet, I fail to give him thanks. And giving thanks is so often relegated even in our prayer lives to the word to the point that we don't even really think about. Because we're more concerned about our needs. We're more concerned about what we want. And so when God answers prayer, we fail to give him the thanks that he deserves. If nothing else, we need to make our request and slow show our thanks to God for his answers. God so often answers our prayer that we come to expect it, right? God so often answers our prayer that we just see that he answers it and we go on and we go, well, that's the way it should be. God doesn't have to do anything for us. He chooses to do so because he loves us. So we should thank him for it. When was the last time you took time to thank God for your salvation? One more verse this morning and we'll wrap up. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in the great therefore great therefore uh, despite this great number of issues Corinth had issues at the wazoo <laughs> and Paul has dealt with them throughout this letter but despite all of this notice how he addressed them he calls them my dear brothers he had great care for them notice earlier he called them fools <laughs> Sometimes there's got to be tough love, right? But he loved them so much. He called them my dear brothers. Even when he had to correct them, he loved them. And Paul's motivation in all of chapter 15 is to correct them in love about their 
misunderstanding of the resurrection because misunderstanding the resurrection means you're misunderstanding the gospel. And so he says, since the believers are going to receive this great transformation, and since they will be beneficiaries of the great triumph, not only should we issue a great thanksgiving, but we should also live in a great therefore. Because of who they are in Christ, Paul encouraged the believers to stand firm in the gospel message. Stand firm in the message of the resurrection. Cling to the belief in it. Because to deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel. He says, don't allow false teaching to destroy your only hope for salvation. No matter how persuasive an argument might sound, remember the truth of Christ's resurrection and remember the truth of your future resurrection. For to deny the resurrection is to believe in vain. Several times in this chapter, Paul views this phrase in vain. In vain means that it's empty or without content. The good news is the tomb is empty. The tomb is in vain. And because the tomb is empty, our faith is not empty. But if the tomb is not empty, then everything else is vain. If the tomb is not empty, then our preaching is in vain. If the tomb is not empty, then our faith is in vain. If the tomb is not empty, then our works are empty. Without the empty tomb, then we should lament along with Solomon, as he says in Ecclesiastes 1, absolute futility absolute futility everything is futile but the good news is the tomb is empty which means that our faith is christ filled our preaching is christ filled our work is christ filled because of the victory of the resurrection all of these are not futile while we await the great transformation our lives have a purpose And that purpose is to proclaim the risen Christ to the nations and to demonstrate Christ to the world. Are you doing that? If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you have the hope of the great transformation. You have the hope of the great triumph. And you should live with great thanksgiving. And the best way to show that you are thankful for the gospel, that you are thankful for the hope of the resurrection, is to share that with someone else. Is there someone that God is laying on your heart right now that you need to share the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord? Is there someone that you need to share that message with? If so, why don't you pray for them right now? If you're a believer here this morning and you you have someone that God is laying on your heart, take a moment right now and just bow your head and just pray. So you need to bow your head and spend a few minutes in prayer just praying to God that he would send his spirit to work in the hearts and the lives of that individual waiting to hear this message. But maybe you're here this morning and this you don't have the hope of transformation because you haven't accepted Christ. And so I want to challenge you this morning to repent of your sin, to acknowledge that you've rebelled against Do so is to claim salvation.